Microsoft did a study recently on how long people literally engage or watch a computer screen. That's what some of you are doing or many of you are doing right now until they lose concentration. This was their study. They said, you ready for this? Eight seconds. That's eight seconds. What's what's worse, the average attention span of a goldfish is nine seconds. We are one second short of a goldfish, so we're going to need to step it up. And I think what we're about to hear today, I'm going to ask you to focus and to stay engaged of what I think God wants to speak to us today as a church and and for the church. So I want to pray for us that we would begin to allow the Holy Spirit to come and speak to us today. Father, we need you. We thank you for what you're going to say. We thank you for what you're going to do. I pray that there would be focus and that, Lord God, there would be the work of the Holy Spirit that is going to come upon every individual today. In Jesus' name, amen. When you blame others, you give up your power to change. I believe no one is a failure until they blame somebody else. I was reading about a lawsuit in Wisconsin that was that was going on just a few years ago, and a family is suing a cable company because they say the company has turned their family into lazy channel surfers against their will. In fact, he, the, the, the plaintiff says he told them to discontinue the cable service, and all they did was stop billing them. And after repeated attempts to shut it down, as if he couldn't have turned it off, he says now the resulting TV has brought addiction to their family. In fact, these are the words of the plaintiff. Listen to this. They said, I believe the reason I smoke, drink every day, my wife is overeating because we watch TV every day for the last four years. In other words, this communications company made them addicted to TV. And in fact, he said at the end in the article, he said he would drop the lawsuit if he can get a lifetime subscription to cable television. Now, now folks, we have a problem here because it seems that we live in a society that nobody's at fault today. But in reality, according to this Bible and scriptures, everybody's at fault today. This is not today just a, a word for our society, but even for us as a church, the body of Christ today. I love the story of the 1850s Brooklyn, New York pastor, Henry Ward Beecher, who once was asked by a young man how he could keep his congregation wide awake and attentive during his sermons. Beecher replied, he said, he always had a, a, one of his deacons watch for sleepers with his, with, in, in the congregation. And as, and as soon as that deacon in Beecher's church saw someone nodding or dozing, he said, then he was to hasten to the pulpit, ready for this, and wake up the preacher. Did you get that? He said this, he said, wake up the preacher, not the congregation. That man, young man forgot whose fault it really is. And instead of blaming a congregation, there needed to be introspection that was going on. See, there is a world of difference between saying, I've made a mistake and I've sinned. To, and it's huge, the gap between those. To say I've made a mistake removes ownership, responsibility, and makes the rebellious act of sin a mishap and accidental. Most of our preaching today doesn't allow people to see that, that they have sinned, but they're just part of a bad situation. We are not victims. We are sinners. The condition of our planet is from a fall. 
Genesis chapter three, not an accident. And that's why from the very beginning of that fall, man started blaming. A woman started blaming, a man started blaming a woman, a woman started blaming a serpent and brings us all the way to 2021 that we're blaming cable companies and we're blaming congregations, but no one is taking a look at the condition of their own heart. That's why today I want to take you to a Psalm and I want to take you to a story. And I want to show you how dangerous this attitude is where blame comes in and the person who is at fault, it is evident to everybody except the person that is causing the damage and leaving a wake of carnage in his kingdom and people all around him. I want you to go to a Psalm. I want you to go to Psalms chapter 139 for just a moment. I want to read to you a very important prayer that the, that David gave to us. Listen to these, this prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. Other translations will take that last phrase and say, point out anything in me that offends you. Another version says, see whether I am on an evil path. And even the Amplified says it like this, see if there's, and, I, and this one is powerful, see if there's any wicked or hurtful way that's inside of me. David was saying, my heart is the only heart I can deal with by presenting it to you. I can't judge anyone else's heart, but I can judge my own. Billy Graham said it like this, it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict, God's job to judge, and my job is to love. Even the Apostle Paul, the greatest Christian to ever lived, didn't even trust himself to judge himself. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, he says, I am conscious of nothing against myself. That, that's a bold statement. Then he says this, yet I'm not acquitted because of this, but the one who examines me is the Lord. Paul, Paul was almost bringing us back to Psalm 139, come and search me, O God. See, that type of attitude that David and the apostle Paul has, this type of attitude needs to be birthed in prayer and really brought into personal conflicts and personal relationships that we have. Because when we have that heart and have that attitude, instead of saying things like this in conflict and, and, and rela relational conflict, instead of saying things like, you said this, maybe we could say, I may have misunderstood, or, or I, could, I could have been sensitive about these things and I may be at fault here. But so many times we start with the other person instead of starting with us. See, when you replace you with me, it diffuses a volatile situation. The person that does that has been before God, has done exactly what David says in Psalm 139. See, humility, that kind of humility that David and Paul are giving to us in 1 Corinthians 4 and Psalm 139 is what removes the tension in conflict, removes the tension in the room, because that's what a spirit of humility does. See, the best way to diffuse a volatile situation is with that kind of humility. When you start with you, it becomes contagious. I've watched humility breed humility in a difficult situation. Your humility, my humility, helps people start with themselves in marriage, at work with a coworker, even with maybe a conflict with your children. It's called owning it. It's called introspection. It's called starting with you first. What, what that does, it gets others starting to look inside because I can't fix anyone but me. I've got to start with me. Now, before anybody gets angry with me, let me just finish the whole story. One of the last places I used to live 
We, we moved from, I used to get so angry with the drivers. I, I kept thinking like, are blinkers optional? Um, if you got to turn left, then why are you in the right lane? And I used to think to myself, these drivers, these drivers, these drivers. And the Holy Spirit said to me one time, he says, it's not the drivers, maybe it's the impatience of the one driving. While I was looking at everybody else, God was going, you've missed it. You're looking at everybody else, but you haven't even looked at you. Let me read Psalm 139 one more time. He says, search me, O God, know my heart, try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I wanna just break that apart for a second for you to see how introspective this verse is. While David is going, don't look at the cars, look at your own heart. Don't look at anybody else's irresponsibility, look at your impatience. Look at these words from there. David says this, search me, know my heart. Try me, know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any hurtful way in me and then lead me. What's amazing is six times David points the finger at himself. Nothing about them, they, others, cars, wife, husband, children, cable company, uh, the congregation. David goes, it's me. I have to start with me. It's amazing. In marital counseling, I, I've, in all the years, almost 40 years of being in, of counseling people, I, I always ask one question in there. What area are you failing in? I even had one, one wife tell me this. She says, she paused and says, I can't think of one area. Then I said, let's start there. That's a great place to start, thinking of Psalm 139, because those areas that you're failing are the ones that can be changed. You may not be able to change your spouse, your mate, but you can start with you. See, every marriage counseling appointment has to start, always usually starts with the person talking about the other person. I've never had a marriage counseling appointment where it started like this. I'm the problem. Here is where I'm failing. Never in four decades of marital counseling. No one has ever started with themselves. That's why this story is so important, even for my own heart, to remember this. It's a story of David and Saul. It's a story of a young man playing worship music and an older man who's walked away from God. And the conflict and the blame begins in this story. You have the most anointed musician on the planet playing worship songs in a palace before a king. But I want you to keep an eye on the condition of David's audience that who he's playing for. And I want you to see what happens at the first worship service recorded that David plays at and the second worship service recorded that the Bible shows us. And then I want you to ask this question. Did the music change? Why doesn't the harp work anymore? And you're gonna see this. Samuel the prophet, here's the backstory, finds David and secretly anoints him in 1 Samuel chapter 16 to be the next king. Problem, there's another king on the throne. Saul doesn't realize David has just been anointed. David is a man after God's own heart. The David that wrote Psalm 139. And God uses David's gift of worship to put him in a palace in front of the most powerful man in Israel with a serious spiritual problem. Let me read this to you starting in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. 
The Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Samuel arose and went to Ramah. And now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized. Did you just see what just happened? The Spirit comes upon David and the Spirit lifts off Saul. Stay with me now. Saul's servants then said to him, Behold, now an evil spirit from God is terrorizing you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you. Let them seek a man who is a skillful player on the harp. And it shall come about when the evil spirit from God is on you, he's going to play his harp with his hand and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, provide for me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. Verse 18 says this, and one of the young men said, behold, I've seen the son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is a skillful musician, a mighty man of valor, a warrior, one prudent in speech, a handsome man, and the Lord is with him. So Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me your son David, who is with the flock. Jesse took a donkey, loaded it with bread and a jug of wine and a young goat, and sent them to Saul by David, his son. Then David came to Saul, attended him, and Saul loved him greatly. We're gonna come back to that phrase. And David became his armor bearer. Saul sent to Jesse saying, let David now stand before me for he has found favor in my sight. Now here it comes, folks. So it came about that whenever the evil spirit from God came to Saul, David would take the harp, play it with his hand, and Saul would be refreshed and be well, and the evil spirit would depart from him. Don't miss that. Spirit of the Lord came on David. The Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Saul is now tormented by an evil spirit. David plays his harp and Saul is refreshed. That's 1 Samuel chapter 16. We have a kind of a pause in this story in the, between the worship services. And in chapter 17, the great uh, chapter of David versus Goliath, which kind of begins to become the, the, the fuel for chapter 18 going into the second worship service. I have to read this part to you because I want you to see how devastating, how important this is when you begin to put all this together. This is 1 Samuel chapter 18. Let me read to you a few verses. It happened as they were coming when David returned from killing the Philistine, that's Goliath, and the woman came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, with musical instruments. And this is the song they sang, not, they sang it to Saul. That's what it says in verse six. Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Man, that was the thing that started to go deep in his spirit. Then Saul became very angry for this saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David 10 thousands, but to me, they have ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? Now here it comes. Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. It came about on the next day, an evil spirit from God came mightily upon Saul and he raved in the midst of the house. Here it comes, worship service starts. David, the most anointed worship leader on the planet in the palace, just doing what he did in 1 Samuel 16. Here it comes. While David was playing the harp with his hand as usual, and a spear was in Saul's hand. You have a harp in, in the man of God's hand, a Saul in the man that the spirit of the Lord departed. And then all of a sudden it says this, Saul hurled the spear for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped from his presence twice. This is incredible. Something changes. 
On, uh, the evil spirit comes on Saul as usual. David plays the heart as usual. Saul this time is not refreshed. And now Saul is hurling spears. Think of the question. Did the music change between chapter 16 and chapter 18? Why doesn't the harp fix Saul anymore? How come before he was refreshed, but now he is, he is throwing a spear? Think, think of those two questions. Did something happen to the music? Or maybe the better question, did something happen to Saul? Because instead of Saul starting with himself, Saul does what the marriage counseling does. He blames David. He immediately starts with verse eight when he says, what more can this young man have but my kingdom? So instead of looking at himself, of thinking, where is the spirit of God upon me? What's happened to me? Immediately he has pointed the finger. He's pointing like to the congregation, to the cars that don't use their turn signals, to the cable company, instead of Saul pointing to himself. Have you ever felt this way before? Have you ever said, what's happening in my church, or it doesn't seem to move me and help me like it used to. I don't. I, I used to feel refreshed, but I don't feel refreshed anymore. Something is wrong. I don't seem to get anything out of the preaching. I, I, I need to go to another church. The, the music doesn't fill me anymore. This is what Saul was facing. Then instead of starting with him, he started looking music, preaching, the church, cars, congregation, cable companies, and never started with himself. Here in 1 Samuel chapter 18, it's the same David, the same songs, the same heart, but it's a different Saul. What happened to Saul is the issue. I'll tell you what happened. Sin left to itself starts to get worse in the soul of people. Sin left to itself begins to grow in the spirit and soul of people. What happened to the music and the worship and the songs that David played? Here's the answer, nothing. The bigger question is what happened to Saul? And that's why when we find ourselves listening to the, our pastor, listening to the worship leading, and we have to be aware when we're no longer even challenged or brought to our knees or our hands wants to be, wants to be lifted up or the word is not convicting us or challenging us or fellowship is not even desired by us, we have to begin to understand that the problem may not be with the harp. The problem may not be with the harp player. The problem, here it is, the problem, something has been le left unchecked in your spirit. That's, that's, that's the issue with Saul. And what's the danger of that? Trying to find a new heart player instead of asking God for a new heart. Let me say that again. Because when the problem that something has been left unchecked in our spirit, the worst thing we can do is to try to find a new harp player instead of asking God for a new heart. I, I wanna give Two, two things, two things, two important statements I want to make about this issue that I think is important for all of us. I want to start with me. And here are the two things I want you to get. One, sin is never stagnant. And number two, I am at the top of every list as the culprit. It has to start with me first. Let me start with this. Number one, sin is never stagnant. I heard someone say it like this, sin fascinates, then it assassinates. It fascinates you, then it can assassinate you. He was a scientist, a sculpturer, a painter, and a philosopher. He was a musician and a man who historians say was endowed with incredible gifts from God. And in fact, one of the greatest works of art called The Last Supper was done by Leonardo da Vinci. The painting is a work of art 
But it's interesting about it is that the expressions on the disciples' faces um, is literally a story in itself. When you know about this painting, the expressions of 1495 when he was painting it were people around him, that he was looking at personalities and painting faces. When he got to the painting of Christ, he sought long and hard for the right face, is what history says. In one of the churches in Italy, he found a little boy named Pietro, Bandadelli. His face became the focal point of the painting, is what, is what the story says. But here is the legend that goes on with this. He says, after he painted in 1495, it took him three years, all the way to 1498, after all the disciples that sat at the table of the Last Supper have all been painted except one. He was still missing Judas Iscariot. Three years into the painting, you have painted every disciple except one, Judas Iscariot, and you've got the face of Jesus. He needed one that knew the miseries of sin, somebody that knew what it was to, to, to be embraced with sin. And after a long heart search, he found a young man and Leonardo stated his face even made him shudder. He asked the young man and said, what is your name? And he said, I am Pietro Banadelli. You painted me as Christ three years earlier. Folks, what happened? What happened to Pietro? How does, he, how does somebody go from Jesus to Judas? How did Saul go from looking like an anointed king to a murderous employer who's throwing spears now at the most anointed musician on the planet? That instead of honoring David for killing Goliath, Saul chooses jealousy. Instead of celebrating with the women that sang David's song, he took their song as an assault. Charles Finney, the great the great evangelist from the 19th century said it like this, sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, listen to this, and cost you more than you want to pay. And that's why Finney says, sin is the most expensive thing in the universe. If it's forgiven sin, it costs God his son. If it's unforgiven sin, it can cost the sinner his soul and an eternity in hell. Man, think of that. Sin is never stagnant undealt with sin, grows at an alarming rate. See, sin always gets worse when it's left alone. Neglect feeds, or let me, I'll say it like this. Sin incubates in darkness. It incubates when you try to cover it. It finds a way to grow, not like life does that needs sun and, 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 and openness. Sin grows when it's dark inside. A.W. Tozer, the great Christian writer, called it the rule of the wild. He says, when you have a garden, he says, you never have to plant weed seeds. If you do nothing to your garden, he said, weeds grow by default. From his book, The Root of the Righteous, this is important for me to read this. I want you to hear A.W. Tozer's words and thinking, what happened to Saul, what can happen to any one of us because sin is never stagnant. He says it like this on, the, on this call of the wild, the hunger for the wilderness. He says, every farmer knows the hunger of the wilderness. No matter how well prepared the soil is or how well kept the fences are, how carefully painted your buildings are, let the owner neglect for a while his prized and valued acres and they will revert again to the wild and be swallowed up by the wasteland and the jungle. The bias of nature is toward the wilderness, never towards the fruitful field. That's powerful. 
that doing nothing, the bias of, of the, of just nature is towards the wilderness, never towards fruitfulness. And then listen to what he says. Tozer goes, what is true of the field is true also of the soul. And I have to read this to you. The neglected heart will soon be overrun with worldly thoughts. Neglected heart overrun with worldly thoughts. The neglected life will soon become a moral chaos. The church, the church, listen Times Square, the church that is not jealously protected by mighty intercession and sacrificial labors will before long become the abode of every evil bird and the hiding place for the unsuspected corruption. The creeping wilderness will soon take over that church that trusts in its own strength and forgets to watch and pray. And he ends with this, all spiritual effort that does not take into account the hunger of the wilderness and the wild will soon end up overwhelmed with weeds in its soul. Because Saul never dealt with himself, that's where the wildness started to come in. From being refreshed in chapter 16, now you're throwing spears in chapter 18. What was inside of him that grew to the point of murder? How crazy is that? Because sin never stagnates. What started as jealousy in Saul is now manifested into throwing spears. Folks, that's New Testament. James nails that. Here it is. James 4, 1, 2. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that, here comes the wild, wage war inside of your members. Here it comes. You lust and do not have, that's chapter 16, chapter 18 of 1 Samuel, so you commit murder. This is incredible that James nails what Saul is facing. Sin is never stagnant. And finally, let me close with this. I have to realize I'm at the top of every list as the primary suspect. What is scary is that Saul never dealt with Saul. Saul never, Saul never starts with himself. Never once in the story did he ever implicate himself as the issue in the palace. See, even in our lives, when something goes wrong, I have to start with me and not them. I have to start with me and not even you. If you were to ask Saul what caused all of this and your downfall, he'd say David. See, if the first name out of your mouth is not your own, then you will never grow and never resolve conflict. You live a life of chaos. If the first name out of your mouth is you did and, and they did, you and they, there's never resolved. There's always a constant battle that's going on. See, to Saul, David was the problem. David's the demon when the demon is in Saul. David is seen as the problem. Here's, here's what's amazing. In 1 Samuel 16, 21, the Bible says Saul loved David greatly. We read that. Then when you get to chapter 18, Saul becomes angry in verse 8, displeased in verse 8. And then all of a sudden in verse, in verse 9, he becomes suspicious. Verse 12 of chapter 18, Saul becomes afraid. And then finally in verse 15, he, he dreaded David. See, Saul is angry with David, looks with suspicion, afraid, dreads him. The only thing that happened between 16 and 18 is David, Goliath, and a song. But really one other thing, unchecked sin was not brought into account. The anger and the jealousy started to enter in and embraced. He started to embrace that sin. 
Spurgeon just shouts a warning to us, shouts a warning to me when he says, sin murdered Christ, will you be a friend to it? Sin pierced the heart of the incarnate God. How can you even love it? Man, that's a, that's, that, that is a trumpet for my soul today. Sin is never stagnant. I have to start with me. I'm culprit. I'm suspect number one. I, I, what powerful worship we had today. I love listening to our team leading in worship. I'm so thankful for that. Let, let me ask you a question. What if David was one of our guest worship leaders one Sunday as we close? That he, the man after God's own heart, David, was our worship leader today. What, what, what would the music and the atmosphere even be like? Saul had David as his worship leader. Incredible. There's something about music. We see it in 1 Samuel 16 that can change an atmosphere of a place. Listen closely without changing the person. Worship is refreshing, but it's limited in changing us. This is something we really need to hear today. I remember um, in Detroit inviting these people from a cult that didn't believe Jesus was God to a church service. And they sat there, listened to the choir, listened to the singing. Their hands were even raised. Tears were running down their cheek, experiencing something genuine. But it, when it was all over, they were refreshed, but they weren't changed. David would play, Saul would be refreshed, but never changed. That's what 1623 says. See, music is powerful, but it's limited because you have to meet Jesus and not a worship band. You need an encounter with the one we're singing about the topic of songs that you've been singing about. You can come to a service and leave refreshed, but also leave the same way that you came in. That's what a service will do. A service will, will refresh, but it can't change. I, I'm sorry, I have to go with the writer of Hebrews. Worship is poignant, but it's not as sharp as a two-edged sword, which is the word of God. See, if you come to a person, the person of Jesus, you can leave changed. No one can stay the same when Jesus is encountered. That's why, as one man said, Christianity is not coming to a place, but it's coming to a person. Folks, I have to remind you, places will let you down, but Jesus will never disappoint. I want you to be changed. I want you to meet that person today. One man said it like this, Jesus came to raise the dead. The only qualification for the gift of the gospel, you ready for this, is to be dead. You don't have to be smart. You don't have to be good. You don't have to be wise. You don't even have to be wonderful. You don't have to be anything. You just got to be dead. That's it. That's why Colossians 2.13 says, when you were dead in your sins, God made you alive and forgave us of all of our sins. I want you to encounter Jesus today. That's why the most important question I can ask you today is, have you been born again? Have you been born again? This is the question that changes everything. This is the question that you have to get right because that's the question that determines forgiveness of sin and eternity in heaven with God. I use that term born again because some people begin to make the mistake when I ask them, how do you get to heaven? They will use things like water baptism. They'll say, I've taken communion or I had a first communion. 
I go to church or I, I'm a good person. All these things are good, but that's not what Jesus said. Jesus uses the term, the words born again. It's Jesus's term in John 3, 3 and John 3, 5. He says, no man can see the kingdom of heaven unless they're born again. In fact, Jesus says right after that, you must be born again. That means you can't make optional what Jesus says is a necessity. So the big question today is, let's take Jesus's words, have you been born again? Well, Pastor Tim, can you explain it to me? Well, we'll, we'll remind you every single time, it's as simple as A, B, C. The very thing that we'll say to our children, why do we say those kind of things? Because we wanna make it as simple as we can. Let me, let me give you a word that corresponds to each of those three letters, A, B, and C. A, it's admitting I'm a sinner. It, it really is the second point. It's going, I'm culprit number one. I'm the problem. It's getting honest with God that we all, starting with me, have a condition called sin that can't be fixed by a promise, a program, a pastor, a priest. We need help to fix it. I'm broken on the inside and the diagnosis is sin. I have to admit I'm a sinner. Or as one person puts it, we're not mistakers in need of correction. We're sinners in need of a savior. We don't. We need more than a second chance. We need a second birth. That's where the B word comes in. Be believing that God sent his son to fix that sinful condition. I can't fix myself. You can't fix yourself. Saul needed God to fix him, but he couldn't even get by the letter A, admitting that he's a sinner because it was David, it was them, it was blame. And the thing that will stop you from even starting with the letter A before you move to the B word, which is believe, is when we blame everybody else. It was my parents, my father, my community, this person, the church did this to me. We have to start with, I'm the, I'm the culprit. God fixed me, the sinner. And when we do that, we say, be believing that God sent his son to fix me from the inside out. If we could fix ourselves, then Jesus never would have had to come. If I could get to heaven myself by being good, then Jesus would never have to die on the cross for me. Jesus dying on the cross was him being my sin bearer. It was me admitting I'm a sinner and Jesus saying, good, now let me pay that debt for you. He died the death that I should have died, lived the life that I couldn't live to give me a reward, heaven and forgiveness, eternity with him that I didn't even deserve. And finally at sea, confessing him as Lord. That word Lord is big. It's, it's realizing that you're in charge now of my life, Romans 10, 9, and 10. D do you think that God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross just to, just to get a few hours from you on a weekend? That, that's religion will tell you that, but not the Bible, not, not God himself. He said, I, I didn't send my son to die on the cross to get you to watch on a computer or sit in a seat in a pew on a Sunday for two hours, I sent my son not to get your Sundays, but to get every single day. See, Christianity, like we said in the beginning, is coming not to a place, but coming to a person. And that person now becomes in charge. That person becomes Lord. You're in charge of my life. And that's where God begins to change us. That just as you had a first birth, Jesus says we need a second birth. The first birth, many of you born in a hospital, that's your birth date physically. Now it's time to have a second birth date spiritually, and that can happen right now. Wherever you're at, I don't care what day you're listening on. You don't, you don't, you, you can be born again on a Monday or a Thursday. It doesn't matter. Sundays isn't the only day. Every day, 
God says, now, now, today is the day of salvation. Today it could happen to you. If you want to be born again right now and say, I want to start this journey with Pastor Tim, I'm not perfect. Exactly. Perfect people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people go to heaven. And if you're listening right now, I don't care if you're on a couch. I don't care if you're doing weekend visits with, with one of your children because you've been divorced. I don't care if you're a student right here in the city of Columbia and NYU. I don't care if you're watching from the UK or the Caribbean, Mexico or in the Philippines. I want to tell you, today can be your second birthday. Today, your life can change. That today, we start with us and say, God, I can't fix me. I need you to come into my life and change me from the inside out. Wherever you're at, if you're able to pray out loud, I want you to pray a prayer with me and start this brand new journey. Not of religion, but a relationship with Jesus himself. If that's you, would you pray this prayer with me right now? Come on, come on. If you're with, maybe it's a husband and wife saying, let's join hands, let's pray this together. Say these words with me. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe you're the son of God. I believe that on the cross, you took my sin, my shame, and my guilt, and you died for it. You faced hell for me so I wouldn't have to go. You rose from the dead to give me a place in heaven, a purpose on earth, and a relationship with your Father. Today, Lord Jesus, I turn from my sin to be born again. Come on, say it with me now. God is my Father. Jesus is my savior, the Holy Spirit is my helper, and heaven is my home, in Jesus' name, amen. Really, I could just tell you today, happy birthday, happy second birth date. Spiritually, God has started a work inside of you. I, I wanna challenge you to take just a simple step today. If you prayed this prayer, you have made the greatest decision of your life. You've decided Today, you've decided that you are going to be, walk with God, sins are going to be forgiven, and spend eternity with Him and start this journey with us. If that's your decision today, then I want you to text this word DECIDED to 51000, 51,000. I want you to text the word DECIDED to 51,000. Let me tell you what's going to happen because this is important. We're watching people that are texting us the last three weeks. This is a brand new number and they have started a six-week journey with us on these next step. And each day we're going to send you um, a link to a five-minute next steps video that I am telling you is going to help you on this journey. Come on, text it on your phone, on your laptop. I want you to text that word decided and walk with us in these next six weeks on this amazing journey. We're so excited that you made that decision. God bless you. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this message and be sure to subscribe so you can receive new messages each week. Visit tsc.nyc for all the latest info on how you can stay connected. Also, don't forget that you can follow us on social media on all major platforms at Times Square Church. Thanks for tuning in today. Have a great week.